thank you for being here on this warm, humid Indiana morning. My name is Luke. I serve as one of the pastors on staff here at Mercy Road, and it is my greatest joy and privilege to lead you through God's Word this morning. I want to start off by telling you that when my wife and I started dating, she played a joke on me, and the joke went like this. Hey, Luke, I don't know if anyone ever has told you this before or not, but I think you might have a lazy eye. Excuse me, honey? <laughs> yeah, did you know that your eye, it, it kind of droops to the side there? <laughs> Are you kidding me? No one's ever told me this before. She's like, yeah, you might want to get that checked out. I'm not sure. Did you get punched in the eye or something? Like, what happened? I think you might have a lazy eye. So I went to the mirror, and I kept looking. Like, I don't see it. She goes, you got you to gotta look a little more closely. Okay, back, back to the mirror. I just don't see it. I don't see what you're talking about. She goes, because I'm kidding. And in my heart, I go... Oh, babe, it's war. It is war. You signed yourself up for some pain, dear. Because then our funny dating uh, life turned into our funny engagement life, and I thought it would be funny to ask her to dinner uh, about six months into us uh, dating. And we went to a real nice, bougie place, and it was one of those romantic evenings where everything was going just right. And so I got on one knee... I can't know where this is going. <laughs> I got on one knee next to her in this restaurant, and she's like eating some like high dollar sushi deal, and I got like, I don't know, mac and cheese. And I remember we're all sitting there, and I get to one knee, and I look up at her, and I go, oh, sorry, I just need to tie my shoe. <laughs> and then she said out loud, oh, babe, it's war. <laughs> it is war. So then we moved to Arizona, and Ashley, while I was taking a shower in our brand new house, we just had a couple of dogs, no kids, you know, the first year and a half, two years of marriage. And she remembered this false uh, little uh, proposal, which turned into the real deal, by the way. We were married. We were married. She walks into the bathroom with an open can of soup, and she pours it on my head in the shower. So I'm just like covered in soup. And I was conveniently in the shower, so that worked out. And I'm like, babe, it's war. And we just kept adding to the jokes, one after the other. And we kept playing these jokes on each other until we had kids and didn't have time or energy to play jokes on each other. But man, was it hilarious to be in this playful war uh, amongst each other. These playful wars that we, we play with each other, um, these are all fine and well. And these are all beautiful and good if they're in the right context. Here, here's the issue with these little deals where, like, we play pranks on each other. Because I grew up going to summer camps, and I go, grew up going to church camps, and we would classic, classic, like, playing pranks on each other. The pranks can get really out of hand, right? Like, I'll never forget, like, the axe bomb season. Well, the axe bomb was taking the axe body spray. When you're in middle school, you need, like, because middle schoolers just have this scent to them that's just not pleasant, so you have to cover them. In, in body spray, and there was the axe body spray. And what we would do is we would push it down, duct tape it so like it would stay down and we'd throw it into another kid's cabin at camp. And so the entire cabin room would fill up with axe body spray. Well, these pranks began to escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate. And eventually what started out to be funny, uh, someone gets offended, someone gets hurt, and it gets, it gets really bad. It's because our culture and our environment, this primary factor in our life, actually has taught us this eye for an eye principle. The eye for an eye principle is that if you cross me, I cross you. Babe, it's war. And the whole babe, it's war, that can work in the playfulness of a covenant marriage. But that does actually not work well in any other context, in any other environment. You see, we're taught an eye for an eye. We're taught revenge. The world has conditioned the human spirit, the human soul for revenge, to get even and to get fair. This is actually where bitterness and resentment and, and vengefulness grows inside of us. It's because when someone crosses you, when someone betrays you, when someone harms you, you're taught an eye for an eye. 
Your soul's default mode is eye for an eye to get revenge, to get even. So imagine for a moment when Jesus is sitting on the side of a mountain communicating his very first sermon to this eclectic crowd of onlookers and listeners, and he's speaking to a human heart and a soul's condition that has never changed. Because Israel's history was riddled with battles. Battles won and battles lost. Kind of like your life. Your life's got a history of battles won and and battles lost. And so when Jesus gets to verse 9 in Matthew 5, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. He's communicating something that would land on the ears of an audience that were like, nope, that's not right. Blessed are the war makers and the war winners. Blessed is the person who got the can of soup on the head, got the last word, got the victory. You got to understand that Israel's heritage and history being that of occupation and war and battle ongoing They would have heard this new rabbi show up on the scene and try to communicate, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed, this makarai, this word that means God's favor. They'd have been like, no, this rabbi's got it wrong. God's favor is not on those who make peace. God's favor is on those who win their battles, those who win their wars. And just like Jesus in his upside-down, paradoxical, head-scratching teaching is counterforming what they believed about peace, that peace was on the other side of a won battle, that peace was at the end of a a victorious battle that they had engaged in, that peace was because we had war and my side won, and therefore my side has peace and yours does not. That's where we get the term peace deal, striking a peace deal, a truce. That's how we've understood peace. And Jesus says, favored are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Your heritage, your history is spiritually identical to Israel's. And what I mean by that is that in your history, in your background, you have battles won and battles lost. And if you look back on your life's story, you can identify the battles lost and you can identify the battles won. And my guess is that you would say deep down in your soul and your heart, you'd be like, well, God's favor, God's blessing, God's hand, God's involvement was in the battle won, not the battle lost. But Jesus is reteaching, he's correcting something that we have thought about peace this whole time. Because at some time in your life, my guess is that you're a lot like me, we're the same, you have had someone cross you, betray you, break your trust, and in your heart of hearts, deep down in this place that's inside of you that's hard to identify, you have said, it's war. And it wasn't playful because it wasn't you and your spouse poking fun at each other. Someone crossed you. Someone betrayed you. Someone did something to break trust, to break relational covenant, covenant relationship with you. And you in your deepest part of the human spirit have said, it's war. But you're not pouring cans of soup. You're not doing false proposals what you're doing is you're given the cold shoulder. You're given the silent treatment. You've locked this person in an imaginative prison in your mind. You've nursed ill feelings towards this person. There is a deep resentment towards this person. After all, an eye for an eye. After all, get even. After all, revenge is the way of the world and the default posture of the human soul. We got deep quick, but I want to ask you this simple question so that your heart can access what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will facilitate in your heart this morning. I want to ask you, what's the name? What's the name? 
of the enemy in the war you are waging in your soul. You might not have said this person or person's name in your heart, in your mind for many years. Because of the crossing, the betrayal, you're trying to forget it. You're trying to stuff it down. You're trying to hope that it will uh, be buried underground long enough that decay will just happen naturally. We're going to get to a little bit of that later. We're going to find out that that's actually not how it works. That just pretending like it didn't happen or stuffing it away and hoping that it vanishes is um, counterintuitive in, in Jesus' opinion. In your heart, you've said it's war. And the munitions of choice are bitterness and resentment and nursing ill feelings and all of these things that the human spirit has propensity for and naturally does. What hope do we have to be called children of God if our environment has taught us an eye for an eye and our heart's natural posture is that of revenge? What hope do we have to be called children of God? I mean, after all, Jesus just said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. It's just like, I am not being called a child of God right now. How do I get that title? How do I get called a child, a daughter, a son of God. Now, in a real general sense, all of you in this room are children of God because you are all image bearers because God has made you. In this very specific sense that Jesus is trying to teach where he's connecting, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Well, my peacemakers, those naturally, those are going to be my children that know they are children. Those are going to be children that are fully engaged in my family. And understand what it means to make peace. Our environment and our hearts are actively working to form us into the kind of people that facilitates an eye for an eye and a vengeful spirit. So what hope do we have? Okay, here's the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Can you guys say that? Can you say shalom? Great job. That was amazing. Shalom, it means Wholeness, it means completeness. It means much more than just the absence of strife or conflict. It means all togetherness and completeness and doneness and wholeness and full and filled. That is shalom. Maybe a helpful way to understand the difference between peace and shalom is a little bit of a scale here. We can start with negative 10. Strife would be negative 10. Nobody likes strife, conflict, disdainment. The absence of that strife would be a flat zero or a neutral. Just because you have the absence of strife does not mean you have shalom. It just means that you have the absence of strife, the absence of conflict a heart that's not actively embittered. But to have shalom, to have peace, to have wholeness, to have completeness, to have doneness, to have a filling, to have a full shalom is going to be a plus 10. Now the plus 10, you actually cannot add to your life. This is where it becomes an unusual conundrum for the human, is that how do we go from negative 10 persons of strife persons of conflict. We know the world right now is at a state of negative 10. <laughs> the conflicts among nations, the conflicts amongst each other, the conflicts are never ending. The strife is ever present. It's on the news. It's in your family. It's in your workplace. It just seems like it's this virus that just doesn't go away. There's just strife and the lack of peace everywhere you look. Well, sure, that's the natural default of a world that doesn't know God. That's what a world looks like. That's what a human soul is like when it doesn't have the Holy Spirit to reform it and to fill it and to make that person brand new again. Now, I suppose there can be times of peace, like there's wartime and then there's peacetime, or there's a 
peace deal or a truce. And this is the absence of strife, but it is not shalom. How do we get shalom? How do we get wholeness, completeness, filled fullness in our souls? And apart from Christ, as a pastor, I want to just share this truth with you this morning whether you are a Christian and you've been walking with the Lord since infancy or you have just uh, um, lately been introduced to the church and lately been introduced to God and you're just curious about who this man, God, Jesus is, it is impossible to live at peace with others without the peace of Christ living in your heart. It is impossible. It's impossible because you can't put shalom there. Only God can do that. You can't put the space that's in your soul, this inner part of you that is real, but it's hard to like point out and say, there's your soul. But this inside part of who you are as a human, this, this part that God fills, you can't fill it. You just can't. Now you'll try and the world tries, and policies and processes and procedures try to create an absence of strife, which gets you to a neutral zero. But how do you get shalom? How do you get a completeness? Rebellion is what fills the soul before the Holy Spirit does. Your, your natural human proclivity is to rebel. Your natural human instinct is to rebel. Because when God formed you in your mother's womb and dreamt you up and decided to create you for his glory, for you to add value to kingdom's expansion in your lifetime, he made you with free will. And free will comes with the ability to choose God or to choose something else that is not God. And if he made you with free will, when you freely choose God, you are choosing him out of your own love, out of your own volition. Now, if he made you automatically loving him, we're just robots. And this is not a great story. It is only by your free will that you have the ability to choose God and accept his offer of salvation for your soul. And that is the beauty, is that he offers it, and we've got the power to accept it or reject it. And by God's grace, may you have the wisdom to accept it and bring it into your life and bring it into your spirit and bring it into your soul. So that space that I'm referring to, that soul space, you can't fill it. You'll try Companies, governments, they have the ability to create an absence of strife, but that is not shalom. How do we fill it? Galatians 5, through 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It says the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Luke, not the fruit of Larry, not the fruit of Noah, not the fruit of Clinton. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot grow the fruits of the Spirit in your soul. Only the Spirit can do that. So how do you give the Spirit enough room inside that space that's hard to define this inner part of you? How do you give the Spirit all of the freedom in the room to grow these spiritual fruits in you so that you can bear them in your life, out of your mouth, with your behavior, with your decisions, so that you will model them? These are fruits of the Holy Spirit, not fruits of you. Here's an analogy. My wife and I built our house in 2017. We built it with a basement. At the last second, um, our, our, um, the guy that was building our house was like, hey, you can do a basement. We're like, yep, let's do a basement. Here's what we did not know about a basement. We did not know that when you built a house and you had a basement, 
that your basement would become the receptacle for everything. Literally everything. And so my wife and I, as we started to have kids, and now we have a family of a five, three, and one-year-old, and we've got this growing family, guess what comes with a growing family? Junk, junk stuff. Like the amount of Christmas presents and, and, and birthday presents that they get is just overwhelming. And the amount of things that you just get into your home, like the car seat, this, the pack and play, all this stuff begins to like, it's like your home has the gravity for junk. And all of this stuff gets into your home. And then you look at your, your spouse, or maybe you're not married, I don't know, but you think to yourself, like, where do I put this thing? And my wife, Ashley, and I were like, eh, just put it in the basement. You say that enough times, <laughs> your basement becomes like, you can't navigate it. You're like, oh, shoot, how do I get through this? cave and mystery of junk that's in, in the basement. I'm just trying to find the deep freeze. Like, where, where is that? And your basement becomes cluttered. Becomes cluttered. The human soul is like a basement. It becomes cluttered. It becomes cluttered when we are so connected to the ways of the world and we are so connected to our anxieties and our fears. And we're connected to the things that um, actually create depression. That create fruits that are not of the spirit, but they are fruits of the enemy. Because we are so concerned about this temporal world that we are in. The human soul has the gravity to be cluttered. I'll just put it in the basement says the human soul. Just stuff it in the soul. There's room. And then there's not. And you try to access the Holy Spirit through song or through prayer or through scripture reading. You're like, why can't I hear God? Why doesn't God change me, transform me from the inside out? I want to ask you, is your soul cluttered? Is it so filled with the concerns and anxieties and fears that the world projects onto you and that is around you in our environment and just the general stressors of adult life and your soul becomes cluttered and you try to hear the Holy Spirit in your life and you're asking yourself, why can't I hear God? Why isn't God speaking to me? Why isn't God transforming me? God has called you to clear out the clutter. You got to clear out the clutter. When Ashley and I realized that we couldn't navigate that basement anymore because everything ended up in the basement, we said to ourselves, we got to thin this thing out. So we started like making donations to the church in the back and um, we've got some Edgerton toys back there. Anyhow, we started like selling stuff, giving stuff away, throwing stuff away. Here's the thing. We thinned it out. Man, the ability to have it be recluttered is crazy. The human soul needs regular clearing. You must clear out your soul on a daily, a weekly basis. It's like a sponge. It's going to just bring in and hold everything around you. It's going to bring in the anxiety of your work and the fear of your marriage and the depression of your life. It's going to bring in all the trauma and the drama. And it's going to hold it there. How do you clear it out? How do you clear out the clutter? How do you intentionally move what is taking up space inside your soul and push it away? Well, I'll share with you how I experienced some of that in my own life. And, and you can either try this or you can just do what works. What worked for me is solitude for prayer and scripture reading. Because scripture reading and prayer at my stage of life demands solitude, right? And if you're a parent in the room, you understand. If you've got young kids, you understand. You understand how hard it is to find like any time. Any time, right? It's so hard to find like any time for quiet. Like the second you wake up, like, oh, I woke up early. It's like the day that your kid woke up early. Like, Right? So how, how do you clear out your soul? How do you find solitude? Um, there's, there's rhythms in life. There's natural rhythms. 
There are, day, there are parts of your day where you will distract yourself. It's typically at the end of the day, you'll reward yourself with like Netflix or YouTube scrolling or social media scrolling. All of those moments that you distract yourself, those were actually your opportunities to clear your soul, okay? Those were your opportunities. Any moment of distraction, self-distraction, the enemy has said, that's your reward. He doesn't have to make you morally bad. All he has to do is make you distracted. If he can make you distracted, your soul becomes cluttered. Your basement becomes cluttered. How do you clear it out? Every time you are distracted by something morally neutral, that was your moment. That was your opportunity. That's my opportunity. It was just uh, over Memorial Day weekend. I got to go away with my wife. I turned my phone off for the first time in my adult life for three and a half days. The amount of good stuff the Holy Spirit did in an undistracted, decluttered environment was stunning. Your soul needs a clearing. Your spirit needs a clearing. The space inside of this mysterious inner part of who you are gets cluttered so fast, you've got to create rhythms in your life for me, it was solitude for prayer and scripture reading. Now, I might get five or 10 minutes of that from time to time, and I'll take it when I get it, but you must choose. Am I going to be distracted, or am I going to be intentional about the clearing? You've got to be intentional. We are called to create clearing in our life to hear God's voice so that the Spirit can push out everything that's in the basement a clearing from the noise pollution of our world, a clearing from the visual pollution of our screens, a clearing from the attention of the marketplace and marketing and advertising and all the ways that we're told to spend money. You will be at peace when you make peace by clearing space in your soul. And the space you clear in your soul is the space the Holy Spirit moves into. Come on. That's the space. That's the space he moves into. He's like, oh, it's roomy in here. He loves it. Give him the space he craves. Give him the space he deserves. Give him the space he longs for. Because the space the Holy Spirit can find in your soul, the transformative work he can perform inside of you. He just needs a little bit of space. The Russian uh, saint Seraphim of Sarav. He's this venerated saint from the 17th century. He's remembered saying, acquire a peaceful spirit and thousands around you will be saved. Acquire a peaceful spirit. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, inhabiting and occupying the human's soul that's been decluttered It's amazing how God can use that person for the ministry of reconciliation and the ministry of saving of souls for evangelism, for discipleship, for mission. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, it says, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Now, remember, we can't create shalom. We can only create space for the Spirit to create wholeness and completeness and a fullness and a fullness. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The ever-present tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles is a good parallel for Christians and the lost today. Or conservative and non-conservatives, or this group and that group, or... Anyone who's like conflict, 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 and the infighting, the infighting, the infighting, and that cross has the power to bring unity among all people. It's the power of that cross 
That Christ's death, that Christ's resurrection that brings all people into one unified new community. There is peace to be had amongst all people, but at first we'll take all people to gaze at that cross. Reconciled, harmonious relationships are the work of the Holy Spirit, filling the space you cleared for him in your cluttered soul. Because the Holy Spirit, when he gets inside of your soul, in your cluttered soul, he will begin to do the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is the ministry of comfort and reconciliation and all of these other great things that God does, he does because you made space for him. Now, I know that this is all great mental ascent for some of you and for others. It's like, there is no way I'm ever gonna be at peace that person that crossed me, that person that betrayed me, that person that broke my trust, there's just no way that I can come to a place that forgives them. Here's my question for you. How do I make peace with others? How do I make peace with others? Because there's two factors, right? The factor of your environment that's teaching you eye for an eye, and there's the factor of your heart, which is preconditioned for free will that chooses rebellion naturally. You've got two things actively working against you. These two things create options for us, and none of them are good options, but let's call them out nonetheless. The first option is to fight. The first option is to fight, and no one wins. Even if you win, nobody won. You know how I know? I'm married. <laughs> Even if you win, you didn't win. You know what I mean? It's not a good option because no one wins. The second option, of course, is to flight or fly away, or just like get out of town, skip dodge, right? Which is just you running away from your problems. As if your problems can be left in the dust, the problems are in your soul. You carry them with you wherever you go. I don't care if you move to the other side of the world. Your problems will be there too, because they're in here. They're not out there, they're in here. <laughs> they're, the, the bitterness, the, the, the revenge, the, the eye for an eye, this, this thing that's inside of us, this pre the factor of the environment telling us eye for an eye, the factor of your human heart choosing rebellion, they're against you. You're gonna fight, no one wins. You're gonna flight, you're gonna run away from your problems, but carry them with you wherever you go. And the last one, you freeze. And you don't do anything about the peace that does not exist in your heart, which just means you perpetuate the, the issue. The, the issue's not gonna go away. The issue will not go away. I have heard countless times in my adult life something to the effect of, oh, but Luke, time heals all things. And doesn't that just sound good? But quite Literally, Jesus never teaches that cultural axiom, ever. He never does. He never tells someone, time heals all things. He never looks at the human soul and the human spirit and say, just wait long enough. Your soul will heal itself. The peace you long for is coming. He never does that. He never teaches that. He never even alludes to it. Time does not heal all things, so what does? Look at Matthew 5, skipping to 43 through 45. It says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Remember, they came off of a heritage and a tradition that was like battles won, battles lost. God's blessing must be on the battle that was won. Okay, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, the paradoxical, upside-down, head-scratching teachings of Jesus, but I tell you, love your enemies? Love your enemies? Oh, surely not, God. Please, no. Anybody but them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's that child thing again. There's that like being in God's family deal again. Why does he keep bringing that up? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
The first calling on the Christian walk is prayer. Prayer, it's the ability to change reality. The shifting that happens in the spiritual realm and the cosmos of our prayers is something we might never have privilege to witness. But there's prayers being heard in the heavenly spaces that are changing the heavenly spaces that change the reality of our space now. That is the power of prayer. And God is calling us to pray for our enemies? Come on! No! But that's where the power's at. You want to see a lost city meet Jesus? It's going to be by prayer. You want to see a world reconciled to God? It'll be by prayer. You want to see a marriage healed? It'll be by prayer. You want to see an estranged child come back to the family? It will be by prayer. You want to see addiction chopped in half? It'll be by prayer. Prayer. That's where the power's at, is in the prayer. Things change. There's things happening behind the scenes that we can't see. And prayer is what God hears and responds to. Because we have free will to communicate to him and to call on his name and ask for his power to be in our midst so that our reality begins to change. Here on July 9th, we're launching this deal called 24-7 Prayer. For a whole week straight, the vision is unbroken prayer. Starting July 9th. The QR code in front of you will give you an opportunity to sign up for an hour slot. The goal, of course, is 100% participation. It'll take multiple slots for our church to fill for an entire week's worth of prayer to go unbroken to, pre to prepare this church for a spiritual outpouring. If God does something, he does it because his people went praying first. Don't miss that. It's in the QR code right in front of you. Register for prayer. The first thing God calls us to do for our enemies is to pray. How do I make peace with others? It'll be by prayer. Look at Matthew 6, in verse 14. It says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is like the one scary condition in God's word. I don't know how to get around it. I wish I could. I wish I had the verbal gymnastics to get around this. I wish I could tell you, oh, that's just not what Jesus meant. He just forgives you. Even if you don't forgive others, he forgives you. But I, get, I can't get around it. It literally just said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's predicated on the notion that as you withhold forgiveness from others, God is waiting to give you the forgiveness that you long for and, and need so desperately. Forgiveness is a two-way road. He's calling you to give it so that he can give it to you. It's a reciprocal thing. It's a back and forth reality. And in your heart of hearts right now, you must ask yourself, who is the enemy in my soul that I'm waging war against, that I have withheld forgiveness from? That's a dangerous and scary and no good place to be because God very well might be waiting to give his forgiveness to you while he's waiting for you to give your forgiveness to them. He's called us to do two things, to pray and to forgive. Peace with others is on the other side of you praying for them and forgiving them. Time does not heal all things. Actually, time grows mold. And time grows mildew. And time grows algae. And time grows weeds. Time does not heal all things. Time perpetuates all things. Time grows bitterness, grows mold, grows ugly things. Don't fight, don't flight, don't freeze, forgive. Forgive. Could be a text, phone call, email, a face-to-face. -face. Someone in my life recently, um, semi-recently, this person came up to me, oh, maybe like six or nine months ago, 
This person walked up to me and to my face and said, hey, Luke, I forgive you. And then walked away. <laughs> and I was like, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? I, I'm so sorry. By the way, I'm sorry. That person just had the courage. I said something, did something I didn't even know about. But that person had the courage to walk up to me and say, I forgive you. It took some courage on that person's part. You just got to muster up the courage because it takes all of like 10 seconds to communicate that you forgive so that you are set free from the prison you've created for yourself. Now that we understand how to make peace with others, we have to make peace with God. How do I make peace with God? Because there are souls that walked into this room this morning that are in rebellion against God. How do I make peace with this God? Colossians 1, 21 through 22, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, praise God, don't you love it when the scripture says like, but now? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Praise God that that cross had the power to reconcile our rebellion to a God who was just, who demanded wrath because of our sinfulness, but redirected that wrath away from you and toward his son because of his deep commitment out of love for you. God loves you so much. I don't care what church you grew up in. I don't care what family unit you grew up in. I don't care what you heard otherwise. God loves you so much that he's willing to send his son to the cross and resurrect him from the grave three days later to show you his commitment to you. It's life-changing. This is the message that changes the world. This is the message that transforms the heart. This is what brings people from death to life. His offer of forgiveness is for you. If you are not a believer in the room, you will not act like a believer. Therefore, you don't have the obligation to act like a believer. You must just accept the message of salvation from God to, to you. And the message of salvation is him offering forgiveness free of charge, complete and total amnesty, calling on you to lay down your arms of independence and instead with open hands accept this free offer of salvation into your life. And then you're empowered to begin forgiving other people. How cool is that? 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6 says, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. God wants all people, you and you and you and you and you and you and all of you and all of us in this entire city and this entire nation and world. God wants and longs and desires for all people to be saved. The offer is for all people. Don't care what your family of origin looks like. Don't care your birth country. It's for all people. This offer of salvation. And 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20 says that all this is from God. Not by your own doing, not by your moral life, not by all your good decisions. All this is from God who reconciled, to us, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Boy, that's good news. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That means he's entrusted you and me to perpetuate, to propel this message of reconciliation for all people, all people groups, all city, all communities, the whole world. Everyone in, the, in this surrounding area that doesn't know God has empowered you and me to bring that message of reconciliation to them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be 
reconciled to God. Now, I'll never forget rebellion. My life pre-Jesus. And if you had a life pre-Jesus, it's no fun to remember, is it? <laughs> Man, I'll just never forget when I met Jesus. When I encountered Jesus. When I accepted Jesus. Everything changed. I'll never forget that moment when I realized that I couldn't do anything for myself, but all I could do was accept and receive and surrender. That's all I could do. I have this memory from when I was a kid. We had this skateboard rail out in the front driveway. I must have been 15, 16 years old, just a year before I met Jesus. When I was a kid, I had this fascination with fire. Now follow me here. It's amazing I'm alive. Because I put gasoline inside of a super soaker gun. And I pumped that thing. And I soaked the skateboard rail. And I lit it on fire. And the whole thing went like that. I was like, yes. And then I took the super soaker and I was pumping it. And I just kept like going like this in the super, on, on the skateboard rail. And then my buddy had my parents' video camera. And they were videoing this whole thing. So then I went down here and I jumped on my skateboard. And I started going towards the, the burning rail. And I like jumped up on the skateboard and I tried to slide. And I kind of hit it and then I kind of fell off. And I didn't burn myself and it was an absolute miracle. I was like, okay, dude, turn off the camera, turn off the camera. My parents can never know about this. I filmed it. This is what 16 year olds do, right? I took a bucket of water and we poured it all over the skateboard rail so that it went out. <laughs> I took that little tape because, you know, this was the day that you had like the giant, like, you know, video recorder. And I totally forgot about it. We put it back in the cabinet. I think it was just like four or five months later. My parents were going through some home videos and they're like, oh, what's this? So they put it in the VCR because, you know, VCRs, that was a thing. And they started watching it. And I got home from school. My parents sat me down. And they're like, hey, we watched the tape. It's like, what are you talking about? They're like, the skateboard rail on fire? Yeah, we watched that. I was like, oh no. Like, don't. So my parents, in their wisdom, decided to ground me. Because that's what you gotta do to a 16 year old, right? They gotta ground you. And so I couldn't go to that concert on the weekend that I wanted to go to so bad. I couldn't go. And so there was like three or four days between me getting caught with a skateboard rail and this concert. And my parents just had the intention to like sit with me and describe to me and explain to me like why that was wrong and and why you shouldn't have done that, and we would have never approved that. You tried to hide it from us and those kinds of things. And I listened, and I kind of understood at the time. And then my parents did something radical, radical. At the very last moment, just before the concert, they sat me down, and they said, hey, Luke, we think that you understand this now, and we just want to show you our grace. The undeserved favor that you didn't earn, that you don't deserve at all. You lit a skateboard rail on fire. You're an idiot. You should remain punished. But we love you, and we want to show you something called grace. And they let me go to the concert. I have no idea if the Holy Spirit used that to begin in me something that was going to change. I have to believe that he did. Because it was just a year later that I completely and entirely surrendered my life to Jesus at 17 years old. Every single one of you has been in rebellion against God. And there might be a person in this room right now who's rebelling against God. And God wants to show you a little something called grace, an undeserved favor, an offer of salvation, something fresh, something new in your life where you can choose to bring yourself into his presence and accept the gift of salvation. 
I'm not sure if that's you today, but if it's you, I want to invite you. It is only by the cross of Christ, the power of the resurrection of Jesus, that can bring you from rebellion to obedience. So I want to invite you to close your eyes, to bow your heads. I just want to say a prayer over the person, the daughter, the son in the room. I want to invite you. I want to invite you with hands open to receive what is only free to receive, the gift of salvation. This is how you gain peace with God. You gain peace with God by accepting the gift of salvation. I know your soul is drawn to rebellious things. I know your soul is cluttered and has no space for God, but it takes just a moment for you to push out the clutter and allow the Holy Spirit to enter your soul. And perhaps you can even feel your your body and your mind and your heart warming with a spiritual warmth. Even in this prayer, in this moment, that's the Holy Spirit stepping into the space you created for him. May you have the courage to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, has done what he has said he has done and invites you to the cross of Christ, the symbol of death and power, the symbol that reminds us that Christ was crucified on our behalf, resurrected from the grave on our behalf to glorify God in heaven and to set us people free. And I know you want freedom, friend. I know you want it in the deepest parts of your soul. You want freedom from control. You want freedom from pain, from trauma, from your past. Give it all to God. Have the courage to surrender it all to God. If you want shalom, if you want peace and completeness and wholeness and filled and fullness, you must open your hands and give it to God. You must allow yourself to be available enough to God that he can step into that space and bring you back to life with his breath. I want to invite you to the cross. I want to invite you to repentance. I want to invite you to the prayer room for prayer. I want to invite you to worship. There is but one God who offers this salvation, friend, and his name is Jesus. And if you're a Christian in the room and you have found yourself Oh God, so cluttered with things in your soul, the fears, the anxieties, the depressions, the traumas, the drama of life. You must be intentional enough to find time to clear out your soul, to make a clearing for the Holy Spirit, to move in, to produce the fruits of the Holy Spirit. One of which is peace. Shalom. God, we love you. We're grateful for you. We ask for more power this morning, more provision this morning. God, I just want to invite all of the people in this room, if they feel uh, moved to go to the cross or go to the prayer room, um, give them that courage, Jesus. We love you. We say these things in your perfectly powerful name, Jesus. Amen.